introduction music is by the Beverly Crushers. You can find them on Bandcamp, and that's from uh, their new album, Sick Bay. Hi, and welcome to Academic Trek, a podcast about academic research in Star Trek. My name is Daniel, and I'm your host. Hello, and uh, welcome to Academic Trek. Today, I'm very pleased to say I have uh, Rick Webb with me. Uh, Rick Webb wrote uh, quite a famous article, I think, in some ways, about the economics of Star Trek. Um, Normally, at this point, I say hello. Hello, Rick. Hello. And then I also then read out a biography of of the person I'm interviewing. But to be honest with you, I've been a bit useless recently. I've got a lot of college work and work on and stuff, and I have um, failed to ask Rick early enough. So I'm going to just ask Rick now to introduce himself um, briefly, if you could. Yeah, my name is Rick Webb. I'm a writer. Uh, I work at a company called Time Hop, which is the sort of first nostalgia company on the internet. Been around for about 10 years. And uh, I've written three books, but the one we're talking about today is The Economics of Star Trek, the post proto-post-scarcity economy. Fantastic. Thank you, Rick. So my first question, as ever, is why Trek? Yeah, so I am just under 50 years old. I'll be 49 this year, and I grew up on Trek. My father and mother were both sci-fi fans, and Trek was in its sort of first rerun syndication in the mid to late 70s when I was a kid, and I watched it my whole childhood. I watched the... I have very vivid memories of watching the the motion picture in the theater when I was... I would have been seven. Uh, And then when I started dating my now wife... We, she had never seen Trek. She's a big sci-fi fan, but she was really more like X-Files, later period sci-fi. And so we sat down to watch all of Trek again. And I had never watched it all in order because I was watching it sort of before DVRs and Netflix and all that. So you you took it when you could get it, basically. So it was the first time I watched it all in order. And I kind of wanted to have a project because I'm a workaholic. So while we were watching it, rewatching all of it, I decided to pay attention to the economics and finally sort out exactly how it worked. Fantastic. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the economics. Uh, so the, the essay, as you've mentioned, we're going to talk about is the economics of Star Trek, the proto post scarcity economy. First published online five years ago now, five or six years ago. Oh my God. It is. I, I just, I just brought it up. It was published November 6th, 2013. So it's been eight wow. years now. Wow, now time flies, eh? Yeah, then in 2018, for the five-year anniversary, I put it into book form, so you can get it on Amazon and all that now. Fantastic. So, And I expanded it greatly. Yep. Sorry. Yeah, I expanded it greatly for the book. There's a bunch of new essays catching up on, you know, Discovery, Picard, and some new concepts and things like that. Fantastic. Okay, so in the essay, um, you... you, Talk about scarcity economics and proto-post-scarcity economics. Could you sort of um, sort of describe those briefly so we have a bit of a basis for, the, for where we're going? Yeah, so I went to college for economics. Uh, it, it's, it wasn't my major. It was a concentration on, in an international relations major. But scarcity economics is the economics that any of us who took an Econ 101 class would know about. That's basically the, the dawn of economics was around scarcity, right? The the concept of intelligently managing scarcity of resources. And then there's a sort of a, a branch of economics where they start dealing about, well, how would all of this work when there is no scarcity? And that's sort of post-scarcity economics. Uh, Keynes himself alluded to this someday this would happen 
in a famous essay he wrote called the economic uh, consequence or the economic uh, something about their grandchildren, economic prospects of our grandchildren. That's what it was called. Called. So, uh, you know, post-scarcity economics is how do we manage resources when there's infinite resources? But what I've always been really fascinated in is getting from A to B. Like, it's generally been considered that Trek takes place in a post-scarcity world. But, you know, we live here now. How do we get there? I wanted some sort of hope. I wanted some sort of roadmap, some sort of plan of how we got from our society to where Trek is. So that's kind of what that's kind of where the proto came from, right? Like there's scarcity where we are now. There's post scarcity where Trek exists. And how do we get from A to B? That's the proto post. Okay, brilliant. So, so scarcity economics really is, 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 as you say, where we are, where there's not enough for everyone and, and it gets sort of managed by capitalism effectively now. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, in the essay, you also talk about having a system where people do not have to work. And I find this really interesting as we are beginning to see sort of experiments in a universal basic income in some places. And it seems to me that the interest in this idea has been increased during COVID. How does this work if we are still living in a scarcity economy? How can we begin again? As you said, how do we begin that journey? Yeah. So one of the craziest things, I think first thing that is important to state about the essay and all of this is that I took Trek at face value, right? Like I didn't, I didn't explain things by saying, well, that writer of that episode was lazy. And I didn't take things that happened outside of the universe in the writer's room or in a book I read about the making of Trek. That stuff didn't count. It was only what was on the screen. And I took it at face value. So a lot of the essay was sort of reconciling these different things that we all know in reality, like the writers had a hard time writing with you know, no money and sometimes they cheat. We know that was in reality, but I ignored all that. And I took it at face value. But to get to your question, one of the things I find crazy is it's been eight years now and exactly what you're alluding to, this has changed radically. Like when I posted the essay, I'd never heard of universal basic income. The day I first posted the essay, that week it got like a million views on Medium. And a commenter, I can't remember who, but a commenter was like, you should check out UBI. And that was the first I'd heard of it, you know, eight years ago. And to go from that to where we are now, where a major presidential candidate was was touting it where we are just past a giant stimulus bill where so many people are going to be getting some money. It's just mind boggling to me that so much progress has been made. When I wrote the essay, I was thinking in the span of 50 to a hundred years, maybe I wouldn't even be alive to see any of this stuff. Now I think, you know, I don't think it's definitely going that way, but we can all see how it could. Um, and then there's a whole other sort of new economic line of thinking that's sort of come to the forefront since then, which is called modern monetary theory. Um, the, Stephanie Kelton wrote a book called The Deficit Myth that is sort of the, the the kind of Bible of it. She wasn't the you know the first person or the only person, but it's really a good sort of primer on the whole subject. And that's like where things like the universal job guarantee come and things like that. And this stuff is becoming mainstream politics far, far faster than I ever imagined. It's, it's pretty mind-boggling. Fantastic. Okay. So um, you also mentioned in the essay um, particip participatory economics or paracon. Could you sort of expand on what this means? What, what does that mean and, and how does that work uh, within Trek? Yeah, so what I was doing there is I was looking at the existing economic theories that were out there, right? There's a lot of sort of branches of economics that go off in, in non-mainstream ways, what, you know, what they would call heterogeneous economics. But um, 
one of those that existed already when I wrote this essay that was out there was, was participatory, participatory economics, Paracon. And that is sort of an endeavor of making an economic model that is not based around capitalism, but isn't full on communism as well, right? And uh, it's sort of uh, around like labor groups. I'm radically simplifying here and my memory is a little rusty, but you know, it's, it's an economic model that already existed that had some aspects of similarity to what was going on in Trek. And there are some people out there that had sort of posited that the Trek universe was the extension of a participatory economics uh, economy. And so I kind of compared and contrast what I saw in the show against this theory. Okay, fantastic. And so how would you describe, describe it in a, in a nutshell as such? How would you describe the, the theory? So I think that Trek is not fully, right? So like, it's definitely not purely communist and it's definitely not purely participatory economics, right? One of the big reasons uh, that's different in Trek than participatory economics is that it is very centrally organized, right? There are no labor groups. There are no unions. Like the, the ship doesn't all, the enterprise crew doesn't all get together and decide the best opinion. They don't elect their captain, right? Like it is command and control. And obviously there's a difference between Starfleet and the Federation, but nonetheless, there is very clearly, you know, command and control. We've seen we've seen the president of the Federation. We've seen the you know the the authority this, these characters have in the in the various episodes. So it's definitely very different than that. It is it is sort of um, we've never heard about a vote, which I find very peculiar. There's never been like we don't know if it's a democracy, but <laughs> we don't know how that president is elected. But you know, we 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 can see that there is still some set rem remnants of capitalism going on, and it's definitely not. Uh, you know, labor is not clearly in charge. So I, I, you know, yeah. So my whole, my whole thesis of the essay is that it's a little bit of something new. It's taking from a lot of different sort of, there's some aspects of communism. There's some aspects of participatory economics. There's a lot of aspects of capitalism, even though we know there is no money, they have stated explicitly, there's no money, but it still seems kind of capitalistic. Right. Um, but that introduces all sorts of interesting questions. Like, Cisco has Cisco's family has a restaurant in New Orleans. Do you pay for the food? How do they get the food? Why is there a restaurant? Is it a restaurant if you don't pay? You know, we don't know exactly what that means, but I'd sort of try and apply the rules that we know to that. And what I really come up with is that it's sort of like an economy based around energy production. Yeah. Like that the ultimate currency is energy. I, I sort of stole this from a a French philosopher named George Bataille that I've been really into since college, who wrote a thesis of economics and he he stated that economics was based in energy. And I think that that is very applicable to the Federation. Like you can't walk up to a replicator and order a million Mercedes Benzes. It'll stop you. I mean, we don't know for sure, but we've never seen it happen. People use replicators like they're, they've got limits to them. There have been a few episodes that have talked about replicator energy, especially in Voyager. So we know there are limits. It's not complete post-scarcity, but you generally don't hit those limits when you act like a normal human being because the limits are pretty high. But everything is still tracked in some way. Um, I had mined my first Bitcoin back then. I knew of the blockchain, but it was just just getting started when I wrote the essay. And so in the in the five year anniversary, I write about how something like the blockchain without so much energy consumption, although who knows, because they can use a lot of energy. Something like that is presumably in the background tracking all of the energy consumption throughout the Federation. OK, so that's really interesting because um... One of the things I was thinking about is that, you know, as, as far as economics goes, I'm no expert at all. So when I look at Star Trek, when I watch Star Trek, 
to me it's always seemed, seemed like a socialist or a communist society but clearly you you argue against this in the essay so so well you... it's not so much i'm arguing against it sorry go ahead go 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 well, it's not so much that I'm arguing against it as I'm taking what's in there at face value, right? There are rich people in the Federation. There are Federation planets that have wealth. Like uh, the first episode of the animated series involves the richest man, the Bill Gates of their day, right? Um, but at the same time, they say, you know, adamantly in Star Trek Four: Voyage Home, we don't have money, right? So how do you reconcile those two? It's not that I'm I'm claiming that it's this way. It's like, that's what we see on the screen. People buy drinks at Quark's bar. So one of the things I've sort of kind of used to sort of, you know, reconcile those two is kind of the concept of foreign reserves or something like that. Like there is money. You don't need it in the Federation per se, but like, you know, Quark's bar is next to Bajor. Bajor is not a Federation planet. Deep Space Nine was, a, you know, not their ship originally. There's money. They need money to transact with the Ferengi. The Ferengi aren't in the Federation, you know. So there is money to be used outside of the Federation. Kind of saying there's money. Money doesn't exist is like saying that we have plumbing, right? We have plumbing, but there are still outhouses. There are still people that don't have plumbing, but we have plumbing. It's like, you know... They're, the average human being in the Federation, the average citizen of the Federation doesn't need money day to day. If you want to collect money or if you have to do business out with some organization outside the Federation, we know that money exists, you know? Yeah. So it's sort of, it's my attempt to reconcile the two. I'm not, I'm not necessarily claiming it's, I, I guess what I'm doing is I'm saying that like a lot of people that claim it's communist, first off, there's money in communism, right? That's not necessarily a, an obstacle, but a lot of people that say it's purely communist are sort of ignoring the episodes that explicitly intuit otherwise, explicitly say something otherwise, and they just write it off as a bad writer, which in reality is probably exactly what happened. That writer just needed to have money in that episode, right? And so they just did that. But I'm taking it as all canon. If it's on the screen, it's real. So I don't have the choice of just saying, like, there's no money at all because there is occasionally money. So how do we, how do we reconcile this two? Okay. So that takes me on, interestingly, to um, a quote from Marx, one of my favourites, in fact, which is, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. So do you think in some ways that sums up the world we see in Star Trek? You know, I know in the essay you talk about, you know, people choosing to, to join Starfleet and, like, um, Cisco's dad choosing to be a chef, that sort of thing. Do you think there's a there's sort of a, a fit there? So, you know, that, that quote from Marx is sort of like a pure, more good version of what we supposedly have in America, this meritocracy thing, right? Like, the, the harder I work or the more I accomplish, the more I get. I don't sense that exactly in Star Trek. I sense the, the, the fairness and the equality of that quote in Star Trek, but I don't sense that Picard necessarily gets more uh, replicator credits than you know ensign barkley right like i i i don't sense that like you are rewarded with more energy for doing more work and they have said like uh, picard has been the person that said most often he says it you know in uh first contact and he says it a few other places where he says that like the whole purpose of star trek is for a person to fulfill their personal and like goals and, and needs and ambitions and personal fulfillment, right? So if there was something like that, I don't even think it would be need. I think it'd be fulfillment. If you are 
personally fulfilling yourself and you need these credits, then yeah, let's go for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I think it's something new is what I'm saying. And I, I think if it were something similar to the, the Marx quote, it'd be like for each according to their fulfillment, you know, is what they get. Something like that. So if you really want a restaurant and yeah, okay, we'll give you the credits for a restaurant if that's your personal fulfillment. That introduces all sorts of like unpleasant questions around who like confirms and validates that stuff. But I'm going to assume it's just based on trust and not some sort of weird review boards or something. You know? <laughs> yes, because you, you discussed, don't you, that there's there's like a lot of um, hierarchy within Star Trek. Again, which, which maybe on the surface at least is sort of, not anti-communist exactly, that's not the right word, but alien to communism, although, of course, we see in reality that there is a hierarchy, but... Yeah, and with infinite... Com right, and with infinite computer power, I imagine a lot of that's automated, right? You walk up to a replicator, you ask for something, a million little decision transactions, transactions are made immediately to confirm if that's something that's a reasonable request, both in terms of energy consumption available, in terms of like whether you should be doing that. Like you can't walk up to a replicator and order 50 starships, right? Like we know they can't build a million starships at Utopia Planitia. There's limits, but they're, they're in the background and they're quick and like... Yeah, you know, if like you ask for something really crazy, it might go, a human might actually be involved, but I think most of it is just automated and everybody kind of knows. And, and in reality, you don't bump up against the rules that often. So it's just not something that's talked about a whole lot. But there is definitely control. Yeah. And I guess, I suppose, if you. Yeah. A ma a yeah, like a madman could not walk up to a replicator and order so much stuff that have it print so much stuff that it consumed all the all the energy in the universe. Like the you know, like the there's a thing called the paperclip maximizer. I don't know if you've heard about this. Sort of yeah. like Nicholas Bostrom, and it's a whole world of sort of like super intelligence. It's a little that's a whole other thing that doesn't exist in Star Trek that I write about in the the new book. But you know, a, a madman could not use up all the energy. There are limits. Right. Okay. So that's really interesting. I guess. We're also going on to more like the the social constructs in Star Trek, in the Federation, certainly, where actually the sort of the, the desire, or not the desire, the, um, what's the right word? The, the sort of lessons you learn as a youngster to, to gain as much as possible aren't being taught in the same way. So maybe that, you know, there's not that desire necessarily in, in most Federation citizens. Yeah, well, one of the things I go, yeah, one of the things I go through in detail in, I think the essay, but definitely at least by the five year version, is that I use the example of garbage collection, right? Because I got a lot of pushback of this. You get a lot of pushback of any utopia. Somebody still has to collect the garbage, right? Garbage collection is awesome if it isn't like something that a doesn't pay well, b isn't respected, right? You know, I watch a ton of YouTube videos these days on landscapers, like people that run landscaping companies. You know, you, rich people see outside, somebody's doing their lawn, they don't think about it. But like, I find the world of landscaping super interesting. And, you know, you can, you know, so like if if the position is elevated in your society and people don't view it as something lowly and you can make a decent living off of it and you're empowered with enough sort of authority to do it in the most efficient way you see fit, any any profession is interesting. There are no lowly ones at that point, right? Like sanitation, sewage, all that is interesting if if your society makes it so. Yeah, okay. That's interesting because when I was reading your essay, I thought about, um, I can't for the life of me remember where I saw it, but the idea that one of the things you can do 
is you can say, you know, like um, sewer workers. So rather than working a 40-hour week, you only work a 10-hour week, and that's your sort of, you have to do a horrible job or, you know, a potentially horrible job, but you then don't work so many hours and, and you get that benefit, and that seems to be another way that maybe it's organised. Yeah, one of the things that I sort of, I kind of stayed away from this part and focused more on the money because I do think it's a little bit more muddled in Star Trek, right? Like there's a whole thing with the doctor, remember uh, uh, on Voyager, the doctor, the hologram and how, do you remember the whole episode where he went and found a bunch of versions of the, of himself, the doctor working in a mine somewhere, right? Like that was really weird. And like it introduced all this sort of stuff that was confusing in Star Trek because like, just like you said, there are, there apparently are still grunt jobs. So like my thesis that every job is elevated was obviously negated in that episode they're using these sentient beings that we consider like intelligent and they went through with data as basically slave labor it was all very disturbing and so <laughs> so i kind of like i kind of stayed more on the economic side of the pol- than the politics side but they do obviously overlap a lot and and um i do think ai comes into it as well right like the, the Federation is pretty schizophrenic about AI. There's explicitly a lot of indecision around AI with data. There's some mysterious thing that happened in the past, which is why, you know, Nunyan Soong was not allowed to build data. They clearly wrestled with some AI problems and outlawed the stuff and put a limit on it, but they never wrestled with the fact that the limit on somebody like the EMH is high enough that maybe it's sentient. Like they, they have some unresolved baggage around a lot of the like sort of <laughs> crap jobs and slave labor stuff that's not great like it's basically not fully a utopia yet you know okay fantastic so um in the essay again you mentioned that when you look at the economics of star trek you said there have been sort of three broad approaches to sort of how this would work in the past and i think really you disagreed with well not disagreed but maybe deviated from all of them but could you expand a bit on the and the sort of standard treatments we've seen yeah so basically like paracon being one which is sort of like uh you know a little bit of the sort of anarchist collective kind of thing the or you know labor driven collective labor not a lot of uh uh centralized command we clearly that's not true because we have centralized command both in starfleet and in the federation calling the federation communist i think that in reality like uh Roddenberry was sort of modeling the Federation after communism, but what's actually transpired on the screen is not exactly fully communist, right? Like people pursue their like personal enrichment rather than the accumulation of wealth. But like, what really is the different? It doesn't mean it just because they're accumulating, they're pursuing personal enrichment that it's not that it's automatically communist. They're still private property, right? That's a whole thing of communism. Cisco's restaurant in New Orleans, Chateau Picard, these are private properties. So it's not fully communist in that way. And then like the third broad approach I outline is like kind of guessing what the writers meant. And I just sort of don't do that. I try and stick to what's on the screen. Okay, fantastic. So talking of what's on the screen, um, this essay was written before the new sort of batch of Trek that we're seeing now. Yeah. So yeah. I wonder whether, um, you've, A, have you watched it? A, oh, B, yeah, have I, you, I watched it all. <laughs> did you enjoy it? I really did not like the first four or five episodes of Discovery because... I am very frustrated with the dystopian obsession of section 31 and whatnot. That drives me crazy. I feel like it's lazy on the behalf of the writers to keep trying to make Star Trek dystopic and it bothers me, but I feel like uh, discovery very much turned itself around as I really loved the last season. And I, I 
that like you know it had some problems it had some growing pains first season of any track episodes always got a little bit of problems but uh all in all, I thought Discovery was really solid. I enjoyed Picard as a show. I did not find it realistic in its interpretation of the Federation. It made me very angry. Um, but they kind of got around all of this by, you know, there's the writer's conceit that the Federation has a border. And when you're past that border, the Federation doesn't count, right? And we've seen that before with the Ferengi, with the Bajorans and Deep Space Nine. So the fact that, like, all that stuff with the casino that... Picard and, and, and seven and nine went to that's all outside the Federation. So it's technically fine, but I just get a little tired of this sort of like dystopic Federation, you know? Um, but I do in the, in the book version, I go through discovery. There's not a lot. Uh, Harry Mudd shows up again and he owned a planet. So that's something in discovery they did. You can own a planet apparently (laughs) (laughs) kind of new information. And, uh, she also, her, her, I can't remember if it was her mother or grandmother, but some relative of hers when she was young, would say penny for your thoughts. And I thought that was very interesting. And, uh, it, but it was an Isik, an Isik for your thoughts. So, you know, that means that there was a unit of currency on Vulcan at some point that's still in like parlance, even though it's, there were some little things, but nothing really changed the, uh, my overall theories. They haven't dead give it away. There is a joke in, oh no, never mind that. <laughs> Uh, uh, in the or the Orville has a joke. Um, I wrote my essay. My friend Manu Sadia wrote the forward for it. He also wrote a book about Star Trek economics. And there is a joke in the Orville that is like basically referencing this stuff. And I thought it was pretty funny, but obviously it's in the Orville and not Trek, so that's not canon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 just, I still enjoy it all. I think it's fun to watch. Um, I thought Picard could be better, but. Uh, yeah. I will certainly watch it if there's more, and I was very excited that it existed. Have not watched Lower Decks yet. Oh, okay, that's interesting because that's yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I, I watched it actually when it came out in the UK. I've only watched it once, so I, I don't really. Um, I'm no expert, but that's interesting. I wonder. Yeah, I, I just wonder. Like, has it? You, you, it hasn't really changed your opinions at all. You don't think there's anything that has really broken. I suppose established canon or anything that you feel that, or maybe anything in there that you think, oh, well, there's an essay in that, or there's a piece of writing in that. Yeah, nothing, nothing's broken it. Um, I did write a discovery essay in the five-year book. I will eventually write a Picard one, uh, and then I'll update the discovery one. I found, you know, it's hard to do this without spoilers. I feel like season three of discovery is not that old, and I don't want to do spoilers. But I found the way they handled that very well. Right, the Federation wasn't as big and powerful in the universe, but within the Federation, it still maintained its Federation ideals. It was a much better interpretation than they've been doing historically, where it's like, you know, in, in the, in the, the Abrams films and in season one of, of discovery, where it was just like always section 31, always dystopia, always evil Federation villains, like into darkness. I'm just tired of that. Right. And so I really liked the way they did that in the, in the last season of discovery. I, I will I've been meaning to write a couple more essays. The book's on, you know, it's a Kindle book, Kindle publishing on Amazon, so I can update it whenever I want with like a couple new essays. I'm, I, I'm hoping to get to that this year. Fantastic. Okay. So last question really is, um, do you think there's anything I missed? Anything you'd like to expand on um, from the original essay or from your, from your um, updated version? So I think the, the craziest thing is how fast this is becoming real, right? And the, another thing, like through our dystopic 2020, the other thing that really stuck to me was the eugenics wars, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like as we see in the first episode, uh, Encounter at Farpoint, the first episode of Next Generation, like humanity went through some really bad shit to get the trek, right? 
And so like, we kind of have this choice and like in 2020, I was like, okay, maybe this is the really bad shit. Uh, <laughs> William Gibson wrote about that in his last books, the peripheral and all that. Like uh, he calls it the jackpot where like something goes horribly wrong with human society before they decide to get their act together. And I was really feeling that last year, but this year I'm feeling a little bit more hope. I really uh, just seeing, you know, like, even this week, the stimulus bill, but like uh, universal basic income, just being something everybody knows what it is now is mind boggling to me. Like that has happened so fast in eight years. That's just insane, you know? And then um, the universal job guarantee isn't quite as mainstream yet, but like the deficit myth was a very, very hot selling book. And these people are having influence in the governments of the United States and in England. And it's crazy to me how fast it's changing. And I, I do think there is potentially a little bit of hope but uh, I really hope we don't have to go through like a eugenics wars or something. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay. So last, last thing uh, is where can we find you? Where can we find you online? Um, anywhere you'd like to point us to? Yeah. I mean, I'm Rick Webb pretty much everywhere. I've been working on the internet for 20 years. So I have my name pretty much everywhere. I'm tr on Twitter at Rick Webb. RickWebb.net is where you can buy the book if you want to buy it directly from me and avoid Amazon. Um, you know, I got an email list on there. If you, Rick Webb, pretty much everywhere. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Rick. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you so really much. Thank you. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, okay. Well, thank you. And uh, that's it.